All right, well, good morning, everybody, and welcome here to Grace Church in the Medina East Campus. As, uh, like Tommy was mentioning a minute ago, as we are actually looking to kind of close up a series in the next couple of weeks uh, that we've been calling the Everyday Revolution. It's actually been a pretty long series, if you've been with us in this. We actually started all the way back in April, and we've been working our way kind of through that, and now uh, we are sort of in the final segment of this series. We'll be finishing this series up uh, kind of next week, and uh, let me just say something, too, that Tommy mentioned just a moment ago, and that is that if you are a guest with us here today or it's your first time at Grace Church. Man, thanks so much for being here. We, we count it an absolute privilege uh, that you would carve out some time on your Sunday morning. We know your time is valuable uh, to spend that here with us, and, uh, and so we're so glad you're here. But if you have, have kind of missed this conversation or if you've missed parts of this conversation, let me just kind of quickly recap what it is that we've been talking about um, in this series that we've been calling the Everyday Revolution. So in this series, just put simply, what we've been doing is we've been talking through the everyday relationships in life. And so we've been kind of talking through the day in, day out, nitty gritty, everyday relationships. And, and, so, and so you can kind of even see from our graphic here, it kind of spells out the different relationships that we've looked at. And so when we began this series, we actually started by spending a few weeks talking about the everyday relationship of marriage. And we talked to husbands, we talked to wives, we talked to singles, and we kind of navigated that conversation a little bit. And then we kind of changed gears. We started talking about the everyday relationship of parenting. We talked about parents and children and the interactions that happen there. And we talked about generations uh, we talked about how older and younger generations work and interplay with each other. And then, of course, we talked about work relationships as well and kind of how those, those pan out and how those play out in addition to those things. And so this is what we've been doing, kind of talking about these everyday relationships of life. And the way that we've been doing that is we've been looking at the Bible, and we've actually been looking at New Testament passages mainly uh, that are sometimes referred to as the household codes. And the reason we've been looking at those passages is because those passages speak to the everyday relationships of life. And the question that we've been investigating together, some of you might remember, is a real simple question, but it's very profound in its implications. And that's this, does God have an idea deal for our everyday relationships, right? That's the question that we're asking. Does God have, in other words, does God have a way that he wants our everyday relationships to work? Does God have an ideal for marriage? Does God have an ideal for parenting? Does God have an ideal for how generations work with each other? Or do we just get to define those things however we choose to define those things? And so this is a question we've been uh, investigating, and this is what we've been discovering, is what God's ideal is in these, uh, these various different relationships. And so last week, if you were here, we actually kind of clicked into the final segment of this conversation, and we started the conversation on everyday people. And of course, uh, what that means when we talk about everyday people is just sort of a generic way to say that what we're really talking about here is we're talking about gender issues. And so we're talking about manhood and womanhood. Uh, does God have an ideal for manhood and womanhood? Does God have a way that he wants men and women to interact with each other? Does God have an ideal for the role of gender in society, in the church, in the family? Uh, and if he does, what does that ideal sort of look like? And so we started this conversation last week. We said we know that this one in particular is a pretty sensitive topic in our culture. Uh, but I would just encourage you, last week, if you missed last week, it would probably be to your advantage to go back and listen to that because I believe uh, that what we're gonna say this week and what we're gonna say next week only makes sense in the context of the foundation that we laid last week. And so last week we really unpacked what does the Bible teach about gender roles and, and, and what, what does 
does scripture teach about these things? And I, I feel like we laid a really important foundation last week. And so if you missed that, you wanna go back to our website. Um, I'd encourage you to download that, watch that. You can subscribe to our podcast. All of that is for free. But today what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna shift into speaking specifically about biblical manhood. So what we're gonna talk about today is we're gonna talk about what does the Bible teach, what is God's ideal for men, for manhood, uh, for, the, for the gender role of men. And then next week, we're actually gonna talk about biblical womanhood, and that we'll finish the series with that, and we'll kind of end there. Now, now, let me just say, when I put this up here, biblical manhood, I think for every dude in this room, uh, this is immediately relevant to us, right? And that doesn't take much convincing. But let me just talk to the women for a minute who are here today. And let me just take a moment and explain why I think it's important that you tune in for this conversation. And conversely, let me also just explain for those of us who are guys in this room, why it's important that we come back and we tune in next week when we talk about womanhood, okay? So, so the reason I think that, this, that it's important that we listen to each other and that we understand what the Bible teaches teaches about manhood and womanhood is because, uh, quite frankly, we live in a culture today where we are in desperate need of clarity on this topic, uh, the topic of manhood and womanhood. And so I, I believe because of that, that when we can understand what God's design is for manhood and womanhood, that allows us to know how to complement each other, how to encourage each other, how to communicate with each other and interact with each other in a God-honoring way. And so because of that, I think it's important that we sort of understand that. In fact, I, I believe that this conversation about manhood and womanhood is so unbelievably important. And, and the reason is, is not just because this is a culturally sensitive topic, which it is, but again, I think the big reason is because, man, we are in desperate need of clarity on this topic in our culture. We live in a culture that stresses gender equality so much that, that to some extent or another, we have lost what it truly means to be a man and what it truly means to be a woman. I, I love the way that uh, Wayne Grudem, Wayne Grudem is an author of a phenomenal book, by the way, that I would highly commend to you. Uh, it's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he says something in his book I thought was great. This is what he said. He said, the tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness and our femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss, that's what he says. He goes on, he says, it is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who, listen to this, who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. And the consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons relating on the basis of abstract competencies. He says the consequence, rather, is more divorce, is more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. And what's Grudem saying here? I think what he's saying is really powerful. He's saying, listen, today, we don't know what it means to be men. We don't know what it means to be women. And as a result of the, the, the confusion that comes along with, with, with this, it leads to in some ways, pain and hurt and degradation in society, in the family, and those type of things. And you know, this doesn't surprise me because you know, if you think about it, how we understand and how we define gender roles greatly impacts every relationship we have in life, doesn't it? Now just think about it for a minute. How we interact in our marriage is greatly defined and determined by how we define gender roles, how we understand the role of men and how we understand the role of women. How we interact with the opposite gender 
in dating relationships or just in relationships in gender uh, in, in general is is greatly determined by how we define gender roles, manhood and womanhood. How we raise our kids is greatly defined and is greatly determined by how we define manhood and womanhood. Like I'll just use myself as an example. I have two little boys and a little girl, and I feel the pressure to help these little boys become men and to help this little girl become a lady one day. But how am I gonna help them do that if I'm not clear on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman? And so you can see that this issue of manhood and womanhood is so important, I think it runs deeper than we might, might even know, at least on a surface level. It impacts so many relationships in life. And so because of that, it's a really, really important conversation. And so like I said, today we wanna talk about biblical manhood specifically and try to add some clarity. What does it mean according to the Bible? What is God's ideal and what is God's intention for men as he has created them? And then well, next week we're gonna talk a little bit about women. So as we talk about manhood, I wanna encourage you to grab your Bibles if you got them. And let's start by kind of picking up where we left off last week. And I wanna encourage you to go to Genesis chapter two. So grab your Bibles if you got them. Let's go ahead and flip over to Genesis chapter two. Uh, we actually started it in Genesis last week. I wanna pick up and start here in Genesis two this week. And so you can grab your Bibles and get there. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem. Uh, there's Bibles that should be in the chairs in front of you. And Genesis two is right in the beginning, first book of the Bible. Uh, you shouldn't have a hard time finding it. It should be on page two there. And so you can go ahead and get to Genesis two. And then of course, let me just say, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we think it's super important that you have one. And so you can just take one of ours. And we think it's really important that you have a copy of God's word that you can read for yourself. And so we would love it if you would just take one of those, uh, write your name in it, make it a gift from us to you. Okay, so Genesis 2. Now, as, you, as we're flipping to Genesis chapter 2, let me see if I can just kind of get us on the same page by, uh, by giving us a little bit of a thought experiment. So let me ask you a question, and you don't actually need to answer me out loud, but I just want you to think about it, all right? So when I, when I talk about the idea of manliness or manhood or masculinity, Okay. What, are, what are some of the images and some of the stereotypes and some of the ideas that come to your mind when I, when I talk about masculinity or manliness or manhood, right? So in other words, if I said, hey, be a man, all right? Or, or man up, right? Or if I said, uh, man, be a real man. What, what, what comes to your mind? What are some of the images? What are some of the connotations? What are some of the meanings that come? When I say, what is the ideal man? What do you think of? Some of you ladies are nudging your husband right now. Actually, none of that is happening right now whatsoever, right? <laughs> and, but when you think of it, so I think, I think the interesting thing is if I ask you that question, I think there's a lot of different stereotypes that might come up in your, your mind. So for example, for some of you, when I said, what does it mean to be a real man? What is the idea of masculinity? Maybe for you, the picture that came to your mind is something like this, right? You think of, you think of the outdoorsman man, Right? You think of a dude that wears flannel, kind of lumberjack-esque. The guy probably likes to fish, probably likes to hunt, can probably build his own cabin with the ax that he's holding. Right? A very burly kind of guy. And for some of us, when we think of manhood, this is one, maybe one of the images that might, because this is a real man, right? This is what masculinity sort of can be embodied as. But that's not the only stereotype that our culture pushes forward with masculinity. For some of you, when I said manhood and masculinity, for maybe for you, you thought of the 007 man. Right, which is, another, which is another stereotype that our culture pushes forward. You think of the smooth, sleek, fashionable, mysterious, womanizing type of man. And again, this is another image that's elevated by our culture as a stereotype of what manhood looks like. 
Now, maybe for some of you, you didn't think of either of those. Maybe for you, when I talk about being a man, maybe you think of like NASCAR man. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I, had to, I had to choose this picture, by the way. I had to show this to you because there are so many elements in this picture that just make this awesome. So notice first, he has a Dale Earnhardt Jr. shirt on his NASCAR shirt. He's got a six-pack tattooed to his beer belly. And he's holding a beer. I'm like, the, the stars all aligned in perfect harmony for this picture. This isn't amazing. But for some of us, when we think of masculinity, maybe we think of that. We think of the guy that likes NASCAR, likes to drink beer, drives trucks, listens to country music. That might be the pictures that we come up with, right? Or maybe for you, maybe what you think of is you think a hipster man. And so you think of the dude with the, the, the full sleeve tats, uh, big beard, real fashionable, more of a city guy, not so much of a country guy, probably brews his own tea, hand presses his own coffee, right? And so we think of a guy like that for some of us. For some of us, the image that comes up when we think of manhood is we think of kind of the businessman man, right? Power suit, business mogul, uh, has everything the world has to offer, drives the nicest stuff, has a ton of money, and for some of us, we think about that. For some of us, we think a fitness guy, dude that can bench 300, super buff, right, real, real strong guy. And all I'm trying to point out is there's a lot of different stereotypes of what manhood is in our culture. In fact, if you go to Google Images and type in manhood, which, by the way, don't do that. I, I, I did that by mistake this past week and realized it's a really bad idea. And, uh, but if you do that, uh, you're going to see there's a bunch of different ideas, right? Like this one picture I found, I just, I just had to show this to you. It really doesn't have much to do with anything, but I'm just like, that's just a, that's just a dude carrying, that's a dude carrying a shark. I mean, I'm not sure if it gets better than that. So that's, that's something else. But again, all these are just pictures and images that are associated with our understanding of masculinity. But I think what it reveals to us is that there really is a lot of ambiguity on what does it truly mean to be a man? And, and what does manhood really look like? And see, this is why I think it's important that we go to the Bible and we look at what is the essence of manhood according to God's word. And this is where Genesis 2 comes in. And so the reason I, I wanna go back to Genesis 2, if you were with us last week, is what we said last week is we said that the, is, the issue of gender identity is not an issue of social constructionalism. That is to say that, that gender issues are not a mere construct of society and of culture, but the Bible seems to say that gender issues are actually an issue of created design. And it always goes back to the origins of humanity, of how God, great, God made man and woman back in Genesis chapters one and two. And so that's why we're looking at Genesis chapter two, because in Genesis chapter two, what it's gonna tell us is not only that God made man and woman, but Genesis 2 is actually going to tell us why God made man and woman. The expressed purpose of masculinity and femininity are seen in Genesis chapter 2. And those themes run throughout the rest of Scripture. And so that's why I want to look at this together. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2. Some of this, if you were here last week, might be a bit of a recap. But we're going to look at it with a little different emphasis today as we look at biblical manhood. So let's just start together in verse 5. So Genesis chapter two says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and they watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man that he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Its aromatic resin and onyx is also there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, now, let me, let me just pause here for a minute. How many of you, many of you just kind of honestly here, as I was reading through, through this account, and when the Bible started talking about, okay, now there's these four different rivers, and, and this one river flows by the land of Havilah, and there's gold there, and then there's aromatic resin, and there's onyx, and then there's this other river. How many of you, when I started getting in that, has kind of maybe sort of tuned out a little bit, right? Because you're kind of like, oh, who cares, right? All these details about all, who cares about the name of the river and, and okay, there's gold over there and okay, there's onyx over there and there's aromatic resin. What is aromatic resin? I, who cares about all that stuff? And it's interesting because when I, I know, I know for me, whenever I would read this passage in the past, I just kind of breeze through those details because I'd be like, ah, oh, it seems like it's relatively insignificant to the story. But th- you have to understand the Bible doesn't waste any words and it includes them for a very specific reason. And I believe those little details that we see are there for, very, for a very important reason, that they are essential to the story and they're essential to us understanding humanity. And, and you're like, what are you talking about? Well, here's what I mean. You will probably notice in, when the Bible talks about how God created Eden, it explains that God made trees and he made rivers and there was places that had gold and there was places that had onyx and aromatic resin. What is this all talking about? Well, here, here's, what, here's what the Bible, the biblical author is telling us. When God made, made Eden, he made it with untapped potential, raw materials. You just think about it. He's like, here's trees, here's rivers, there's untapped gold, there's untapped onyx, there is metal, there are minerals. And all of this is pointing to this latent potential that God has placed in the land. The, the whole Garden of Eden is teeming with life and it's teeming with potential and it's all of these, just these untapped resources, these, these raw materials that God makes the garden of. Now, why is that important? Well, I think that understanding that helps us understand what God says in verse 15. I want you to notice what happens in verse 15. Check it out. It says, now... The Lord God took the man, the man that he had made, the man that he had formed, and he put him in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is really key. And this little phrase right here is super significant. The Bible says God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden, now notice, to work it and to take care of it. And so, so here, what you see is, before Eve even comes around, before God even creates the woman, God creates man and he gives him an expressed purpose And what is the expressed purpose that God gives the man? He places him in the Garden of Eden, and the Bible says he places him there to work it and to take care of it. Now, those are really interesting words. Some of you might have different translations, and the translation you might have might say, God put Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to watch over it or to protect it. Genesis chapter one puts it this way. It says that God's role to man was that man would subdue the land and rule over it. You see, all these, all these 
these words are, I think are pointing to this, this same idea that when God places Adam into the garden, he says, Adam, it is your responsibility to now take care of, to subdue, to rule over, to care for, to bring order to what it is that I've created. You see, I don't know if this is, if this is true of you, but I know this is true of me, is that whenever I read the Bible before and I read about the Garden of Eden, I always imagined like a, a, like a, a picturesque garden, right, with well-manicured fields and paths and like flower beds that needed to be mulched. That's what I always imagined. But I think when you read the Bible, you realize that's not what the Garden of Eden was like at all. The Garden of Eden, just imagine it like this. It was more like a wild wilderness. It's just teeming with life, latent with potential, acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of uncultivated land, uncivilized area. And God, God puts the man into the garden and he says, okay, Adam, now here's your role. Here's what I've created you to do. I want you to exercise your creativity. I want you to exercise your ingenuity. You are created in the image of God and so you are like me. And so I want you to take this chaos and I want you to order it. And I want you to, to cultivate the land and I want you to discover things. I want you to, to, to mine gold and I want you to subdue the land and I want you to bring it all to bear for, for the, the flourishing of all that I've created, right? And God says, this is the express purpose that I have. And before Eve even enters into the equation, God says, here is the responsibility I've given the man. Now, here's the thing. I believe that in this one little sentence, you actually have the very core and the very essence of what biblical manhood is all about. And I believe this is a theme that's gonna be carried all throughout the rest of the scripture. You're like, what are you talking about? All right, well, let me just put it this way. If I could summarize for you in one word what I think biblical manhood is all about, which is hard to do that, but I tried to boil it down to one word because I know us guys, at least me, I like things simple. So one word, what is biblical manhood? I, I would say it's this. Biblical manhood could be summarized in this. It is about responsibility. That's what it's about. It's about responsibility. And, and I wanna show you in the rest of our time today how I think this theme carries itself through all of scripture. That whenever the Bible talks about manhood, whenever the Bible talks about masculinity and the roles of males, uh, the gender role of male in society, in the family, in culture, it always points to the fact that there is a divine responsibility in other words, biblical, a biblical man is one who aspires to, is one who leans into, is one who seeks out responsibility. Responsibility to care for, to cultivate, to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to rule over in such a way that everything under his care flourishes. This is the picture of biblical man. See, what you're gonna find is the Bible is far less concerned in what style of dude you are, right? There are all types of different guys that are used by God throughout the Bible. God uses poets, God uses warriors, God uses musicians, God uses doctors, God uses fishermen, he uses blue collar, he uses white collar. In fact, you guys might even remember in the Old Testament, there's this story about these two brothers. You guys remember this, Esau and Jacob? Uh, maybe you've never read this story, but Esau and Jacob, the Bible says, were brothers. But they could not be more different guys. The Bible said Esau was a man of the land. Right? He was an outdoors dude. The Bible said he was real hairy, right? And uh, so imagine Pastor Seth. It's kind of like that sort of thing. And like a real hairy dude. And, and the Bible says that was about Esau. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, the Bible says that Jacob was fair-skinned, 
The Bible says that he was his mom's favorite. It's kind of a mama's boy. The Bible said that he liked to cook, right? And, and you get the idea when you read it that if Jacob was to be on the cover of a magazine, he'd be on the cover of like GQ, and like Esau would have been on the cover of like Field and Stream or something like that. Just two very, very different guys. The Bible is far less concerned about what kind of dude you are, right? And so, by the way, here at Grace Church too, we celebrate the diversity of dudes that are in this room. Bunch of different guys here. Some of you guys are outdoorsman type. You like to hunt fish, you like to shoot guns, right? You, you, you celebrate and, and, and enjoy the fact that you can use the bathroom outdoors. Some of you love that kind of stuff, right? And we celebrate that. I mean, well, most of that, right? And, and, but then some of you are not that way. Some of you are, are more artists or more musicians or, or whatever. Some of you are country people. Some of you are city people. Some of you are more technologically you know, minded. Some of you are more academically. There's all kinds of different guys and the Bible is not as concerned about that in understanding and identifying masculinity. But what is the feature of masculinity the Bible's the most concerned about? Well, the Bible seems to express to us that the primary feature and the primary mark of masculinity, biblical masculinity, is this responsibility, responsibility. And I choose this word not because women don't have a responsibility because we'll talk about this next week. Of course that's true. Women have a responsibility too. But there is a primary responsibility that God has placed on men. In fact, I think if you read in Genesis, you will continue to see that there are further evidences that this is the case. In fact, let me just highlight a few of them for you. The Bible says that Adam is given the responsibility to name the animals. So it's interesting, in Genesis chapter, we read about this last week, but in Genesis chapter two, it's really fascinating. God doesn't simply give responsibility to Adam over the land and over, over, over the, the, the Garden of Eden. He also gives Adam responsibility over the animals. He says, Adam, you're in charge of the animals. I want you to name them. They made them for you. And I want you to think about that for a minute because in ancient, ancient Near East culture, to name something was symbolic of uh, authority and responsibility over something. Right? Just, and that's actually kind of true in our society today too, isn't it? Because think about it. Who names stuff? Well, parents name children. Why? Because they have authority and they have responsibility over their kids. Right? They're stewarding their children. Um, who names stuff? People name their pets. Fido, Rex, my favorite dog name ever, Snowpants, such a good name, right? People name their dogs and their animals. Why? Because they have authority, because they have responsibility over them. It's their stewardship. When you look in the Bible, what do you see? Who names stuff? God names stuff. In Genesis chapter one, God's creating. He calls the day, day. He calls the night, night. He names it those things. He names the land, land. He names the sea, sea. Why is God naming stuff? Because he made it because he has authority over it, because he has responsibility over it. That's why he does it. And what you see in Genesis chapter two is that God takes this responsibility of naming things and he delegates that to Adam. He says, all right, Adam, you are responsible to take the chaos of what I've created and bring order to it, just like I do, and you are now responsible to take the animals and name after them and name them and watch after them. And, and he delegates this to them. The Bible also shows us that Adam is created first and he's given, prime, he's given primary responsibility in his relationship with Eve. And so the Bible, the Bible seems to tell us that it's an important feature that Adam and Eve were not created at the same time, nor were they created in the same way. Now, why, why is that significant? Well, the Bible actually seems to say that the order of creation matters a whole lot. In fact, you might not know this, but a bunch of New Testament uh, authors 
Now, the Apostle Paul being the primary one, look at the created order of things as being very, very important in the responsibility of humanity. The Bible seems to say it's important that Adam was created first. Not that he's first in priority, not that he's first in significance, but he is first in responsibility. And the Bible seems to show us that. Adam is, the, is held responsible for the original sin. In Genesis chapter three, the Bible tells us when Adam and Eve slip into sin, uh, Eve is the one who is deceived by the serpent. Eve is the one who ate of the fruit and gave it to her husband. And yet, who is it that God holds responsible for the original sin? It's Adam. Why? Because he abdicated his responsibility. Because he, he, he gave way to his responsibility to, to, in these ways. And the Bible would look and say that Adam was responsible. I think all of this simply evidences this reality that biblical manhood, the mark of biblical manhood, is that men have a responsibility a responsibility, a God-divine-given responsibility that all that's underneath their care is to flourish and that all that's underneath their care is to grow. And, and, and let me just say that I think, by the way, that this word, this idea of responsibility in the Bible is what separates the men from the boys. It is responsibility that separates the men from the boys. See, because here, here's what I think. I think all of us understand there is a difference between being a male and being a man. It's a big difference between those two things. I have, like I said, I have two little boys at home. They're six and seven. No one would argue that they're male. Uh, they have the biology of a male. They have the anatomy of a male. They have all that stuff. But listen, they are not men. They're not men yet. They're boys right now. They're not men. Now my hope is, by God's grace, that they will grow into becoming men, right? But they're not men yet. And listen, the same, the same is true. You could be a grown male and you can still not be a man. You can be a boy who shaves. It is very possible for that to happen. And I love the way the Apostle Paul says it. He says it this way. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me, right? It's what the Bible says. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul seems to say, when I was a kid, when I was a boy, I thought like a boy. I talked like a boy. I acted like a boy. He says, but now that I've become a man, there's been a transition that's happened. I talk different, I act different, I think different. Which of course makes, I think some of us would ask then, well then how does a man talk, how does a man act, how does a man think as compared to a boy? Well, let me just give you some examples in the Bible. In fact, I made a little chart just to help us in this conversation, right? And so you'll notice in this chart, on this side, this column is manhood. I'm gonna talk about biblically, what does a man talk like, act like, think like? And then boyhood, uh, conversely, what does a boy think like, act like, talk like? Now, let, let me just mention something that might seem obvious. You'll notice there's only two columns here. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, where's the third column? Where's the middle column? Where's adolescence at? Well, here's something I thought was real interesting. I actually learned this this past week. Did you know that adolescence is a more recent uh, cultural and social construct of our time? Do you know that? that? That is to say, historically and traditionally and biblically, uh, adolescence was not a thing. You were a boy and then bam, you're a man. All of a sudden you're expected to act like a man. This is why in Jewish culture, when you turn 13, they have a bar mitzvah. Why? Because you're not a boy anymore. Now you're expected to act like, think like, talk like a man. That's what happens when you turn 13. And so adolescence is a more recent social construction and I believe that it was really invented to prolong boyhood. And so, so let me just say this. If, you're, if you are a high school student or you're a middle school student in this room, do not let your age keep you and prohibit you from living up to the expectations of manhood. Don't, don't use your age as an excuse to simply prolong being a boy. 
I think that the Bible would show us that God wants something different, that there's a different aspiration we're to have if we want to be men. So what is then manhood and boyhood? Well, here's what the Bible would say. Uh, One of the marks of biblical manhood is a biblical man is someone who takes responsibility, there's our key word, takes responsibility for himself and for others. The Bible's gonna show us that. Whereas boys, I mean, you guys know this, children, one of the features of kids is that kids look to others to take care of them, right? Uh, What is true of all children? What is true of little boys? Well, they need someone to take care of them. Uh, They need parents. They need authorities, right? They need a guardian of some type. They need someone who's gonna provide for them financially and physically. They need someone who's gonna pack their lunch for them and draw a little heart in the peanut butter for them, right? That's the kind of stuff that they need. They need love and nurture and attention and all of these things when they're boys because that's what boys need, someone to take care of them in these things. Well, the Bible says when you become a man, you start to act and think differently and you begin to take responsibility, not just for yourself, but you also seek after taking responsibility for others as well. It's very interesting, this idea of the responsibility of men uh, that we see in scripture seems to carry itself over into every relationship in the Bible. So let me just give you a couple examples. In the marriage relationship, we looked at this passage when we talked about marriage several weeks ago. You will see that God's design for marriage is one where the male in the relationship, where the husband carries a primary responsibility in that relationship. So notice what it says. It says the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. So the Bible says that that the man carries this responsibility that God has given him to cultivate, to oversee, to to bring to health and and to flourishing. He, He takes that sense of responsibility and he's to bring it to him in his marriage. And so the husband is now the head of that relationship. And by the way, headship, let me just be clear on this, headship is not a right for men. It's not like, I'm the head, you listen to me. That's not what it is. Headship is a responsibility of the man. That God, he says, you are responsible. You are responsible for cultivating. You are responsible for overseeing and watching and caring for this relationship and bringing it to a place of health, for, for taking the, the untapped resources and taking the raw materials and bringing something good out of it. That's what men are called to in marriage. That's why he says in this passage, husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. In other words, husbands are to do this, do you notice, for the benefit and for the flourishing of their wives. God says you're responsible for that relationship. The the same responsibility carries over into parenting. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter six, fathers do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. When we talked about parenting several weeks ago, we said something really fascinating. Whenever the Bible talks about parenting issues, it always addresses fathers. Why is that? Does it mean mom's not important? Of course not, and no one would argue that moms are crucial in that relationship. Why does the Bible always address fathers then? Well, I think the reason is because it's addressing this responsibility that God has given to men in their, it's a primary responsibility that God has given to men in this relationship. So let me just say, if you're a husband in this room and your marriage is on the rocks or your marriage is dissonant or your marriage is growing cold or it's just not what it used to be, you may not be 100% at fault for that, but you are 100% responsible to take initiative, to cultivate, to, to, to seek after the help that you need in that relationship. 
That God, God has put, put that responsibility of headship on husbands. Let me just say that if you're a father in this room, okay, and if your kids are having disciplinary issues, if there's some struggles that your kids are going through right now and, 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 and you're more prone to just kind of pretend like it doesn't exist, listen, it might not be 100% your fault. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to come in and to, and to raise your kids and to be involved in that process and to help, get with a, help your kids kind of process those things. God has put that responsibility on husbands, on fathers, on men in these different areas. It's interesting, uh, the Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And what does it look like to act like a man, Paul? Well, he actually adds some stuff. He says, well, be strong, stand firm. I love this, he says, be watchful. Part of what it means to be a man, according to the Bible, is to be watchful. It's a really fascinating word. It's actually the word that literally means to be vigilant. Uh, you get this picture of like, um, get this picture of like a watchman who's standing watch at night. Everyone in the city is sleeping, uh, but he is wide awake. He's, everyone else can rest. Why? Because he's watching. He's careful to the needs of those that he's entrusted to. He's watching out for the needs of those people. Listen, let me just say, men, are you watchful? Are you watchful or are you aloof? Are you attentive to the needs, the spiritual needs, the physical needs, the financial needs, the emotional needs of your wife, of your kids, of those that God has put in your trust and your care? Are you watchful? Are you watchful of what's coming into your house? What's being downloaded onto the devices that your children are looking at, the things that they're, are you watchful or are you aloof? Are you disengaged? Are you distracted by whatever? The Bible says there's a responsibility that God has placed on men. And one of the true marks of manhood is that men take responsibility, not just for themselves, but for others. Now, let me just say it real quick. If you're a single dude, in this room, you might be thinking to yourself, well, man, I'm not married, I don't have kids, so I'm not, like, I'm not responsible for anyone, and so this doesn't really apply to me. But let me just ask you this question, right? Do you aspire to responsibility? Or do you avoid it like the plague? Do you dodge it, right? Do you seek after being responsible for yourself? Are you trying to get a job? Are you trying to move out of your parents' basement? Are you thinking about selling your video games, right? Or, or are you just, or do you dodge responsibility? Do you hide from it? Do you, do you try to stiff arm any, or do you, do, you, do, you, do you aspire to it in your community, in your church, at your work? Do you aspire to those things? Because I think the Bible would say that's the kind of stuff that men do. Men take responsibility, not just for themselves, but also for others. Here's the second thing. The Bible's gonna tell us that a biblical man is one who sacrifices self for the needs and for the flourishing of others. He's considerate to the needs of others. Whereas boys, and I think all of us know this, one of the staple features of children is that they're self-focused. And that's not because it's a bad thing, it's just an immature thing, right? Kids are self-focused. Kids have difficulty entering into the world of others. Think about it for a minute. What do little kids do? What do they think about? They think about themselves. They think about what they wanna think of. What do they talk about? They talk about what they wanna talk about. What do they want? They want what they want. And if they don't get what they want, they complain about what they're always just thinking about themselves all the time. It is hard for a child, almost impossible for them, to enter into the world of other people. It's hard for them, right? When's the last time your kid, your four, five, six, seven-year-old, came up to you and said, mom and dad, you know what? I just wanted to say, I am so appreciative of what you do for me. 
and I know you work hard, and I know you gotta pay the bills, and I know you gotta pay the mortgage, and I know, I know all this stuff is going on. I was just thinking about you the other day, and I was thinking, man, it's gotta be so tough to be you, you know? And I was just reading this article that, that talked about how when you have children, it's hard to maintain intimacy in your marriage. And so you know what, mom and dad, I just, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go over to the table, and I'm gonna draw pictures quietly. Why don't you guys go have a date night? Like, when would that ever happen? What universe would that ever, and it would never happen. Why? Kids can't enter into the world of other people. They're thinking about themselves. Well, the Bible says when you become a man, you start to act like, think like, talk like a man. What does that look like? Well, part of it is you sacrifice yourself for the needs and flourishing of others. You're considerate. You start thinking about other people. Start caring about the needs of others. It's interesting what First Peter says. This, again, is in the marriage context, but I think, I think you can see the undercurrent of masculinity in here. He says, husbands, in the same way, you are to be considerate as you live with your wives. It's interesting, the word considerate there, some translations say, you are to treat your wife with knowledge. What does that mean? It means you have to know your wife. Be a student of her, understand her. Know what makes her tick, think about her, right? Be considerate, don't just think about yourself, but think about her too. What must it be like to be her? And put yourself in her shoes and then sacrifice of yourself for her needs. And then he goes on, he says, uh, and treat your wife with respect as the weaker partner. Now, we've actually addressed this a little bit. This, this verse right here has gotten a lot of heat in our culture. And we put a lot of stress on gender equality. And so some people have looked at that and said, man, that's, that's not true. Women are not weaker than men. Men, men are not stronger than women. And, and let me just be real clear here. Are, are women weaker than men in some ways? Yes. Are men weaker than women in some ways? Yes. By God's beautiful design, we believe that we are made differently, beautifully, and uniquely. However, what the Bible is pointing out here when First Peter talks about how uh, women are the weaker partner, he's talking about the fact that generally speaking, biologically, women are weaker physically than men are. Men tend to be stronger. And that, that's just, I don't, know why that's, I don't know why that's so argued because that is within our biology. Now just think about it. When men are born, what is the primary hormone that men are born with? Testosterone. What does testosterone do? It creates lean muscle, and it creates, uh, an, you get easily aggravated, right? That's what testosterone does. What does estrogen do? It does all kinds of amazing things. And, and, and so it's not that those are bad things. It's just by our biological design, God has designed that. Why did God design it that way? God designed men to be physically stronger, not to subjugate their wives, not to subjugate those that are underneath their authority. That's, that would be disparaging to God. But he has given us that so that we can use that to serve, to care for the needs of others. That's why God has given those things. So what does that practically mean? Well, I think here's, here's a couple practical examples. Um, so let's just use the, mari the marriage analogy. If you're married, you're laying in bed with your wife at nighttime, you guys are both asleep, and you hear this, this crash down in the kitchen, right? Who gets up to check out the noise? Dudes, we do, right? Every time, like no, no, no husband ought to be nudging his wife. Hey, babe, there's some real scary noise downstairs. You go check it out for me, you know? And if it's nothing, you make me a sandwich or something. Like, you don't do that, right? It's the wrong thing to do. Some of you are like, yeah, but dude, my wife's stronger than me. And my wife has a better shot than me, right? Listen, I don't care. It doesn't matter. If, if she's going to go check on the noise, it better be over your lifeless, cold body. Because this is the responsibility that God has given to men. Right, we're to do this. And listen, I think whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, I think all of us know there's something right about that. 
There's something right about that. I'll never forget this story um, Dr. Randy Stinson told. Uh, Randy Stinson is a, a professor at a seminary. He's got like a bazillion kids. And he told this story I thought was great. He's got these bunch of little boys. And he said one of the things that he trains his boys is he has this phrase. And he says, whenever you're, whenever you're in a, a threatening situation or you're in a, a tough spot uh, where, there's, where there's potential harm, he says, I want you to remember this. The boy goes down and the girl goes free. The boy goes down and the girl goes free. And he would have him say it back with him. Say it back with me. Boy goes down, girl goes free. Boy, down, boy goes down, girl goes free. And he would drill it in these kids. And he was talking about how this one time he was working from home and he was looking out his office window and he saw one of his sons, I don't know how old he was, but he was flying down this hill in a wagon. And he said, my son was just, you know, being a boy, flying down this hill in this wagon. And he said, this little girl on a bike rode her bike right into the line of where the, 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 the wagon was coming down. And, and he said, when I, when I saw it, I knew that the collision was imminent. It was certain that it was gonna happen. And so he was watching it, cringing, waiting for it to unfold. And he said, at the very last moment, he saw his son rock the wagon, flip the wagon. He said, and the wagon went head over heels several times, hit his son, son was all bruised up. And so he said, uh, Dr. Stinson said, him and his wife ran outside to assess the damage. They got to blood everywhere. They took him in, they pulled him inside. They tried to clean him up to see if they needed to go to the hospital and he said that his son, through his tears and through his blood, looked at him and said, the boy goes down and the girl goes free. Right, Dad? And he said that he looked at his son and he said, that's right, buddy. That's right, the boy goes down and the girl goes free because, that, because that's man's stuff right there. That, that's man's stuff. Leveraging strength, leveraging those things for the protection of another. That's what, our, that's what Jesus does, doesn't it? Our God went down so his people could go free. And God says this is the same responsibility that he's placed on men. And I, I think, once again, I think whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, you know that that's right. I think that was, that was seen back in 2012. Some of you, you guys remember when The Dark Knight Rises came out, that Batman movie, and there was that horrendous shooting that took place down in Colorado in the movie theater. You guys remember that? Some crazy guy came in, put tear gas, started shooting up the place. And what you might not remember about that is that what emerged from that was that there was this story of these three guys in their 20s, not even married, not even married, these three guys in their 20s. They went to the movie with a girlfriend and, and, uh, and, and news, uh, the different news anchors said that these three guys, what they did when, they start, when the shooting started to happen is they laid on top of their girlfriends. They covered them with their bodies as a body shield and all three of them took a bullet and died. And the boys went down and the girls went free. And these guys were nationally and within their community recognizes heroes, and rightfully so. Why? Because that's right. Because that's right. And to do the opposite would be cowardly, to, 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 to put uh, someone in harm's way for the sake of self-preservation. For a man to do that would be a cowardly act. And I think there's something about that that we see within Scripture. I think, you guys, this is why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says that, uh, that men are to not rebuke older men harshly, but to extort him as if he were a father. Treat younger men as brothers. Now notice this. Treat older women as mothers, younger women with, as sisters with absolute purity. So the Bible seems to say there is a responsibility given to men in how they treat women. And how is it that you treat women? Well, you treat older women as mothers. How do you treat your mom? You love her, you care for her, you're respectful to her. That's how you treat your mom. How do you, how do you treat young women? You, the Bible says you treat them like sisters, absolute purity. 
which let me just say something real quick to single guys, and this applies to all guys, but if you're single and you're in the dating world, this really applies to you. The Bible says that it matters to God how you treat young women, really matters to him, all right? And so do not, do not play with her emotions. Do not uh, manipulate or smooth talk her into bed so that you can simply satisfy your own desires and satisfy your own impulses, that would be disparaging to God. The Bible says that we are to treat younger women, to treat young women as sisters with absolute purity. And the truth is, if you have a hard time doing that, if you're a dude and you're, you have a, you're having a hard time because you're burning with passion in those things, then okay, here's what you need to do. You need to get a job, okay? You need to be, take responsibility for yourself. You need to find a girl, you need to marry her. Make a commitment to her. Some of you are like, well, I'm just not ready to be tied down yet. Well, what you just told me is you're not ready for man stuff. You're still over in boy land somewhere. And the Bible would say, we don't, we don't need any more boys. We need men. We need more men who would sacrifice themselves and be considerate for the needs of others. The Bible would say um, that manhood, a biblical man is one who initiates. He aspires to responsibility. This is what we've been saying the whole time. They don't flee from or run from or avoid responsibility. That's what, that's what children do. Boys avoid responsibility. Uh, they're self-protecting. They're passive. They're blame-shifting. Uh, this is what we actually saw in Adam in Genesis chapter three. When God comes down to the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, what's Adam doing? He's hiding. Where are you, man? Where were you? And then, and then he looks at Adam. He says, did you guys eat from the tree that I told you not to? And what's Adam's response? Woman told me to do it blame-shifting, passive, right? And, and, and that, that whole picture is one that shows us a boyhood versus manhood. I'll give you one more. The Bible says that biblical men are temperate, they're self-controlled, whereas boys uh, are notoriously impulsive. They're driven by the need for instant gratification, easily angered, easily hurt, easily offended, super emotional, impulsive, driven by needs for instant gratification. That's what boys do. That's what boys do. You, you, know what, you know what's so interesting to me? It's interesting, and it actually kind of breaks my heart a little bit, that we live in a society that most of the marks of manhood are those of impulsiveness and a lack of self-control. That, that tends to be the way, like the marks of it. Like, think about it. When we talk about what it means to be a man, a lot of times it, it has a lot to do with uncontrolled um, just indulgence in impulsive things, right? So, for example, like, what does it mean to be a man? Well, men, men like to look at girls. That's what we do. Woo! Look at girls. Yeah, how many girls you slept with, man? Oh, that's a man up high, right? Like, what, what, what kind of strength, what type of self-control does it take uh, to just simply act on indulgences and sexual impulses? It takes no strength, it takes no self-control, takes no impulse to do that. And yet, that's how we sometimes define manhood. What, what do we say it means to be a man? Real man can hold his liquor. You hold your liquor? How many can you take, man? Come on, be a man, hold your liquor. Like, is that what it, is that what it means to be a man? Is how much liquor you can hold? No, no, that, that's just a sign of uncontrolled indulgence. How, how much self-control, how much strength does it take? to just binge in, in, in something that's pleasurable. None. That's what boys do, right? A manhood is sometimes uh, identified in uncontrolled pride. No one tells me what to do. No one looks at me sideways. No one does whatever. I'll show them, right? It's just uncontrolled pride. The Bible says, no, man, a biblical man is one who's temperate, 
He takes responsibility for his emotions. He's self-controlled. It's actually interesting if you look at 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. He says, man, just cut the attitude. Take responsibility. Um, He says in Titus, teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, love and endurance. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. It's the same idea. It's interesting, the word temperate literally means to curb your impulses. That's what it means. And so the Bible says, what's part of, what is it? in part to be a man, it means to be temperate, it means to be self-controlled. You know, it's interesting, the picture that comes to my mind when I think of, of this idea of being temperate and self-controlled, is I actually think about Jesus. Uh, it's interesting, you guys might remember, maybe, maybe you haven't read this story, but in the New Testament, when Jesus gets arrested, uh, the Bible tells us before he's crucified, he gets arrested, and Peter, one of the apostles, acts on impulse. And the Bible says he takes out a sword and he lobs off the ear of the guy that's arresting Jesus. And Jesus heals the ear of the guy and the Bible says that he then turns and he looks at Peter and he rebukes him and he says, Peter, that's not how we fight, dude. That's not how we do this. He says, don't you know if I wanted to, I could call down 10,000 angels from heaven right now. We could take care of this. This is not what we do. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus had all the strength and all the power in the world. He could have called down 10,000 angels at any moment if he wanted to and yet he was so self-controlled that he endured mockery He endured lashings. He endured being spit in his face, his beard ripped out, crucifixion. He endured all of that. And he could have at any moment called down 10,000 angels and just destroyed everybody. How much strength does that take? How how much self-control does that take? And on top of that, Jesus is on the cross and what does he say when he's on the cross? He looks at all these people who are mocking him, all of these sinners who he is dying for. And he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Here's Jesus who is, has, is, has, is not at fault whatsoever and yet he takes full responsibility. So that's what it means to be a man. True manhood, you see there. And we go on and on, but I think for time's sake, this gives us a good picture of what the Bible teaches about biblical manhood. Now, now here's the thing. When you look at this list over here of what biblical manhood looks like, the, the truth is this. The truth is, that when you have men like this in a society, in a home, in a marriage, in a family, in a church, everything flourishes and everything grows. And, and that's, just not, that's not just my opinion. There are so many statistics and there are so many different studies that have been done that evidence that this is the case universally. No matter what culture, no matter where you are in time or history, this is true that where men take this type of action and take this type of responsibility, everything flourishes. Society flourishes. And yet we also see when you have these type of men in families and in society and in churches, everything crumbles. Everything breaks down and everything degrades. And so the Bible, I think, would say the bottom line is that God is calling us into a different vision for what biblical manhood looks like. So I'm gonna ask the band to come up, make their way up here as we finish. And I wanna close with just one final, but probably the most important thought of this whole conversation here today, and then we'll worship and we'll get a chance to sing together. But, but let me just say something. When you look at this list, for those, for those of us guys in this room, when we look at this list of what it looks like to be a biblical man, I think, I think if you're anything like me, what happens to me when I look at this is I get full of a whole bunch of shame and guilt because, man, I'm not, I'm not living up to this at all. 
and I have failed in so many different ways in this category. And, and quite honestly, I think what can happen in a conversation like this is you can feel like you're just getting loaded down with how you're a failure and how so, so much guilt and so much. And let me just say, that's not my intention here at all. That's not my intention of this conversation is to do that because every man, all of us fall short in this. But here's what I want you to notice because I think here is the real key to this whole conversation is that when you look at this list of what it looks like to be a biblical man, the Bible would say that no one actually meets this criteria perfectly, but there's only one man who has, and that is the man Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. And so what is it, how do we then aspire to become the men that God wants us to be? Well, here's the tricky thing. The answer is not to try harder and to grit your teeth and just work harder at being a better man. The answer is actually this. It's to follow Jesus because if you follow Jesus, he will make you into the man that he wants you to become. And it's only when his life is lived out through us by the power of his spirit that we're gonna have the resources that we need to become the men that God wants us to become. And so if you're, if you're a man that doesn't follow Christ or you don't know Jesus, that is the starting place because it is only by God's grace and God's grace alone that we can become the men that God wants us to become. Let me just also say that if you're a wife or if you're a child in this room and you're thinking about your dad or you're thinking about your husband or you're thinking about your son and you're thinking about this picture, do not use this as a resource to heap guilt on them. Use this as a resource to pray for them. And th the responsibility that God has placed on man is weighty. It is weighty. And we, and we need your prayers. We need you to pray for us as we step into the responsibilities that God has given us. And so men, I think that really what our job is is to follow Jesus and to come to him and to beg with him and to plead with him that he would help us to become the men that he wants us to be. And so as we close, why don't we do that together? Let's just take a moment right now and let's ask God to help us to become the men that he wants us to be. Well, Father, I just wanna say thank you for your word because uh, God, if we were just left without it, we would, we would have no idea what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. We would be left to our own invention, we'd be left to our own devices, and we'd probably just be influenced by our culture, which is really not helpful. But Father, because your word is timeless, it, it presents to us a radically different view of what manhood looks like. And I think, God, it's because you have designed gender as a beautiful thing that's good for us, that's, that's for your glory. So God, I just wanna pray. In fact, I wanna beg you right now, for those of us in this room who are men, God, for those of us who are husbands, help us to be the men that our wives need. God, for those of us who are fathers, help us to aspire to become the men that they need. God, our kids need dads who are involved. They don't, we don't need any more boys. We have enough boys. Help us to aspire into the manhood. And God, we, we, we have to rely on your grace to, to transform us in those ways. Jesus, thank you that you're the perfect man and that you are the, the perfect picture of what true masculinity looks like, that you are temperate, that you are self-controlled, that you sacrifice yourself for the needs of others, that you take responsibility, not just for yourself, but you take responsibility for us. Even though our sin was not your fault, you took 100% responsible. God, thank you that you sacrifice yourself for our flourishing. Our God went down so we could go free. Father, all of that is embodied in you. And so I pray by your great mercy that you would help us to become the men that you desire us to become. Lord, I pray that this church would be full of men who love you, worship you, and serve you, that love their families and take responsibility in those places. 
I pray that this would be a church full of single guys that treat their sisters with absolute purity, that don't use women or don't abuse women in a way to just meet their own impulses, God, but that they serve. And Father, I pray that as a result of that, that we would get a chance to see how your good design was intended to work. And so, Father, we love you, and uh, we just wanna pray these things and ask that we be blessed for having heard this conversation today. In Jesus' name, amen.